A couple weeks ago, Danielle and I were attending a wedding here at Dawson, followed by a reception that was right after it. And as we got to the wedding reception, one of our church members came up to us and said, hey, pastor, I bet you come to these all the time, talking about weddings, wedding receptions, those kinds of things. And and the truth of it is, over 20 years, we have attended a lot of weddings. I've officiated a lot of weddings. He asked me in the moment, how many weddings do you think that you have officiated? I don't know the answer to that. I'm, I'm sure I could figure that out. But it's enough to know some things about weddings Over 20 years of walking with couples to the actual wedding ceremony and to their marriage that follows there, I've not once had a couple said, hey, let's just feel the moment. Let's just be in the moment. And let's just come up with the words that we want to say in the moment. No, the the importance of the covenant that is being made between that husband-to-be and that wife-to-be, it demands a, a fixed ceremony. It demands that words matter. It's not left to our imagination. It's not left to spontaneity, where people are going to stand, what they're going to wear, what is going to be said. In that moment, there is something that is supremely important about the covenant that is being made that demands a ceremony. We live in a fairly unceremonial culture. And in the casual nature of our culture, very few things rise to that place of of demanding a ceremony because our commitments aren't all that fixed and all that firm. But when a husband-to-be and a wife-to-be look uh, into the eyes of one another, there is something about that covenant that demands a ceremony. I'm going to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Exodus chapter 24 this morning as we think of the covenant that God is making with his people, the Israelites. And just as every bride that walks down the aisle and every groom that gets married, there is sinfulness. This, This covenant that a holy God is making is with an imperfect bride. This covenant that is being made is between a holy God and an imperfect people. It's not the first covenant that we're going to discover in scripture. When you take your copy of God's word and you walk through it, you'll come to Genesis chapter nine and there God establishes the covenant after he floods the earth and he says to Noah, look into the sky. And when I, when I place this rainbow in the sky, it is a reminder to you, it's a tangible representation of my promise that never again will I flood the entire earth. You go to Genesis chapter 15 and God says to Abram, I'm gonna make you a great nation And through your lineage, I'm going to give you land and I am going to give you a people. And those people that we know to be the Israelites, they're going to be a blessing to all nations. And God establishes a covenant there in Genesis 15. Now we come to Exodus chapter 24. God has already, through his grace, set the Israelites free from Egyptian captivity. He's already, through his grace, brought them through the parting of the Red Sea. He's already, through his grace, given them the words of the Ten Commandments, given them the words that we looked at last week called the Book of the Covenant, Exodus 21 through Exodus 24. And now there's a ceremony. A ceremony with a call to worship. A ceremony with the the word of God that is given. A a ceremony with a commitment and a response by the people of God. And a ceremony that will have a reception after it. We won't get to it today. But there is a meal that they share after this ceremonial covenant that is made here. 
Exodus chapter 24, hear the word of the Lord as we think of the importance of covenant and we think in the importance of this ceremony. What was the ceremony? What was this? Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and all the people responded or answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, the Israelites, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is the word of the Lord to us this very day. Covenants matter, ceremonies matter, the words in those ceremonies matter. When a couple are making vows to one another, these are not vows that that they have not thought carefully through, or these are not vows that don't have a richness of church history that comes in to that moment here. And Moses has this covenant that is being made between God and the Israelites, and it is based upon the words and the rules. Notice the all-encompassing nature all the words, all the rules, how do we differentiate? What is Moses talking about here? What is God talking about here? What's the difference between the words and the rules? Three times, once in Exodus, two times in Deuteronomy, we have a Hebrew phrase that describes the 10 commandments that is not really 10 commandments, but it is the 10 words. That's how it's referenced. So Exodus chapter 20, the 10 commandments that we looked at last January, February, March, and April, that is called the words. There's a wonderful book on the 10 commandments that came out a couple of years ago by Jen Wilkin. And it's entitled, well, it's channeling this very thought here, all the words to live by, all the words to live by. And it's an important idea here that Moses is is speaking the Ten Commandments, but what were the rules? The rules were the book of the covenant, Exodus 21, 22, 23, all the specificity and all the regulations that the Israelites are going to live out as they wander in the wilderness and they establish themselves as a new nation. So he, Moses, is speaking the Ten Commandments. He is speaking what we know to be the book of the covenant, and the people respond with, we'll do it. All these words, we will do it. Verse four, Moses writes down the words that were spoken to him of the 10 commandments and the book of the covenant. Just a little aside here. One of the reasons that throughout church history, we've believed Moses to write down what's called the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament are these kinds of passages that you find in Exodus 24, verse four. It's just a passing aside. Moses is sitting down and he's writing these things out. 
So how we get the Bible are actual people inspired by God writing out the words. And this is how we have what you have before us now. As it's translated from Hebrew into English throughout the years here, no doubt. But notice that these are the words that we are to live by here. And after they make a vow, the response of the people is, we're going to do this. Now, hey, this is 2023. Birmingham, Alabama. What in the world does any of this have to do with you and me? What in the world does this have to do with you and me? Well, it has a lot to do with us. Two things I want you to see. First, the word still guides us. The covenant that God is making with the Israelites is a word-centered covenant. Moses wrote down all the words. He speaks all the words. It is a word base. God's love for and his expectations for the people of God. God's affections and his expectations are based upon the revealed word of God. God doesn't say, hey, Moses, I need you to get a consensus of the Israelites. Bring out a whiteboard and and try to brainstorm a little of of what you think we should do as the people of God here. That's That's not how we come up with the word of God. God speaks and they heed the word. They hear the word and they heed the word here. And so the covenant is a word-centered covenant. Now, this isn't that far from your life. This isn't that far from my life. In the ancient Near Eastern world, for a covenant to be established, it had to be in writing. And to not be in writing meant that it was not binding. And again, that's not so elusive to us. We don't have to have this great historical imagination to get us to that place. Why? How many of you that are homeowners purchased your home with, with a handshake and a word of a promise. No, I mean, you sat down and you sat down with an attorney and you had countless pages. Maybe you docu-signed those pages or maybe you're sitting down and you're signing every one of them because why the details matter? And the details bring about accountability. And so God is saying to his people, the details matter. Now, we as the people of God still stand like the Israelites, knowing his affection for us and his expectations for us because he is a God who is not silent. He has not left it to your imagination to see what he thinks about you, how he has set his affection upon you and his expectations for you. It is not that God is saying, look into the stars, and discern the, the, the position of the stars, and then there's a secret code that you're going to be able to figure out, or look at the position of the clouds, and then you can figure it out. No, he's given to us not just the Ten Commandments, not just Exodus 21 to 22 and 23, the book of the covenant, but he has given to us Genesis through Revelation. He's given to us his word through his spirit that still guides us. The Apostle Paul, writing to his protege in the ministry, Timothy, would stop and he would pause and say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. That, that phrase there is the same phrase that we have in Genesis chapter 1, where God speaks the stars into existence. He speaks light into existence. He speaks uh, animals into existence, humanity into existence in Adam and Eve. So the same God that speaks and there isn't and there is, is the God who speaks and inspires 
the word of God that is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God, and we could fill in the woman of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. I just want to remind you as Christians that the word of God is sufficient for your life. That to, to read the word of God and to heed the word of God doesn't just give us random facts so that we might win some uh, contestant or we might, we might know all the answers in sort of a biblical jeopardy. No, when you read the word of God, when you heed the word of God, it enables you to behold the glory of Jesus, to, to see his love for you and the way that he desires to lead you. The word of God in the Bible or the spiritual nutrients that when we, when we listen to them, we study them, we memorize them, we obey them, that they are the spiritual nutrients to get metabolized into our soul and it allows us to be transformed. So we look different. Over time, we talk differently. We think differently. We act more like Jesus as the spirit of God seeps the word of God into the deep places of our life. And over time, we are renewed. We're metamorphosized. We're transformed, not instantaneously. A conversion is a moment in time. The making of a Christian saint is a lifetime of a journey that is only complete when we meet him in eternity. It's a lifetime of a journey guided by his word. Uh, many of you know that our students, our chapel choir, 9th through 12th, they're headed to Wells. Really, really excited about the destination of our chapel choir mission tour. Uh, John and others have done a fantastic job working with a local missionary that has been stationed in Wells for decades now. One of the most brilliant men. I'm just so excited that our students are going to be able to get to know this missionary by the name of John Robinson. He's uh, such a faithful man of God, brilliant in every way. He is fluent in over 20 different languages. And his mission, his, his sort of, uh, his planting in Wells has been able to, to get the word of God in the native Celtic languages there, the British Isles. It's a wonderful ministry. It's a ministry that I became personally uh, connected with when over 20 years ago, when I was finishing my sophomore year in college, I went through our Baptist campus ministry for three months that summer to serve in Wells. I was supposed to go to Scotland. I was really excited about Scotland. If you remember, that was sort of at the height of Braveheart, Mel Gibson's movie. And I was just wanted to go over to Scotland and, you know, obnoxious Americans say, freedom, freedom, you know, those kinds of things. And so one week before going to Scotland, it got changed. I go to Wells, didn't know much about Wells. There for three months and really a life-changing experience for me. I'd proposed to Danielle two days before I got on the plane to spend three months there. Three months in Wells, let my hair grow out completely, never got a haircut. Three months there, grew out this beard. Uh, three months there, the food is good, but the food is not Alabama food. It's not Mississippi food. And so it's not that great really. And so I get off the plane and I had lost 20 pounds. I see Danielle, she looks at me, she wonders, is it, can I get out of this right now here? Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, long hair, beard, and my brother, who was 13 at the time, he meets me with my mom, and the first thing that he, he looks at me and he says, David, you look weird. 
And then I talked, I mean, listen, you know, strong Mississippi accent, grew up in Jackson, but over three months that are in Welsh, you know, you got these Welsh inflections that get mixed in there. And I talk and he says, David, you sound weird. Why? Because I'd been immersed in something that was different than what I had been reared and raised in. And it began over time to make a difference, actually, not just in my physical appearance, but the way I thought. Certainly in the way I looked, but the way I sounded. Now listen, uh, not a perfect analogy, but when we immerse ourselves in the word of God, the Bible, we, we are able to behold the glories of the word incarnate, Jesus, through the spirit of God that dwells in us. And so over time, we are transformed. Over time, we look differently, we talk differently, we think differently by what? Not being conformed to the patterns of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Then we'll be able, Romans 12, 2, to be able to test and approve God's will for his life, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God's word guided the people then. God's word continues to guide the people now. The question is, are we hearing it and heeding it? Are we hungry, as the Israelites were, to say, we will do it and obey everything? Or do we hear it and not heed it? Are we hearers of the word and not doers of the word? It's in the implementation and application of the word of God that is oftentimes done in community and over time consistently as we listen to the word of God with pen in hand, journal beside us, and we listen to how God speaks to us. And over time, we begin to see the things that we think and things that we do do not line up to the word. And we realize that the word is the standard. And the word gets the final word. The word guides us. Is it guiding your life? Are you spiritually malnourished today? Do you need to take and read and over time begin to align your life to the finality and and truth that is contained in Genesis through Revelation? This is the Israelite's heart. May it be our heart. The word guides us. But more than that, in this passage, this beautiful ceremony, It is strange to our ears. Not only does the word guide, but the blood covers us. Another essential part, after Moses writes down the words, he builds an altar. It's a sacrifice. There's a burnt offering, a peace offering. He takes the blood and he sprinkles it upon the altar, representing the very presence of God. God symbolically is going to make a covenant and the, and the blood upon the altar signifies that he is the one that is coming into this covenant relationship here. And then the rest of the blood is poured into these bowls here. And Moses takes it and throws it on the people, English Standard Version. Some of you see, see sprinkled. But don't think sprinkled. I mean, they they were bathed and washed in the blood. I had in a discipleship group a few years back, we were walking through, me and four other guys, walking through the Bible here, journaling, thinking, talking, meeting on a weekly basis. Real helpful. It's a helpful practice still in my life, helpful in many of your lives. The accountability of that, the commitment of that, the, the questions that come up. Somebody in that group said, hey, what's with all the blood? Reading through Leviticus, reading through sections like Exodus here. It's just kind of primitive, kind of off-putting. 
I mean, we live in a culture that's sort of squeamish toward blood here. And this idea of being immersed in the blood, I mean, we, we, we got a great tune and, and the bluegrass band, they led us and we were clapping along. But if you just stop and you think, are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Is there anything more countercultural than we can sing on Sunday morning than something like that? What, what are we even talking about? Being washed in the blood of the lamb. The Israelites here are sinful people and their sinfulness separates them from a holy God. And one of the things that we discover as we walk through the Old Testament is that, that God's people come into a right relationship with him, not through their effort nor their actions, but by being covered by the sacrificial blood of the animal sacrifices that are made. That's why one of the books of the Bible, Leviticus, is so tedious in detail about how to make these sacrifices. And we as New Testament Christians, we don't bring our bulls, we don't bring our goats, we don't bring lambs to worship with us. Why? Well, I say it every time we partake of communion. I don't do it to fill time. I don't do it just to, just to have another phrase. I say every time that we hold the bread, every time we hold the cup, uh, Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there'd be no forgiveness or no remission of sin. So these Old Testament sacrifices, they, they reminded the Israelites and taught the Israelites for them to be in a right relationship with Christ, they must be covered by the blood of these sacrificial animals here. Now we are not Old Testament saints journeying in the wilderness. We as followers of Jesus realize that the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus has been made. So you don't have to come with a burnt offering. You don't have to come with a peace offering. Why? Ephesians 1 verse 7, see it on the screen, in him. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of grace. Every one of us in this room fails to obey God. Every one of us sins. Every one of us has a, a checkered past, regardless of what you said or didn't say, what you did or you didn't do. All of us stand in need of, of an advocate to stand in between us and a holy God because we, we, we deserve the wrath of God because he's a just God. But he gives us what we do not deserve on the death of the perfect one, not an Old Testament animal sacrifice, but the perfect one, Jesus. And so when we as sinners gaze upon ourselves, yes, we're sinful, but we look to the one who's perfectly righteous, whose blood covers all of our sin. Every time we baptize, no matter if it's a young boy or girl or an adult, I will say you're fisting to be immersed in this water and not a single part of your body is going to be dry. There's not going to be a hair on your head that is not going to go under this water. And it is a reminder that the blood of Jesus Christ washes away all of our sins. What will wash away our sins? We've sung it, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What will make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. There's no other fount that I know and you know. And we need to be reminded of this. 
Uh, there's some of you that came into the sanctuary, and you need to be reminded that the blood of Jesus, it, it covers the guilt that is nipping at your heels, the guilt that haunts you. And you think you can outrun it, you think you can outpace it, you think you can bury it in the past, but you just can't. And you wish in this moment, if I could just go back and redo and rewind, I wouldn't have said it or I would have said it. I would have been more bold. I wouldn't have been as cowardice. And there's so many people that wonder, what do I do with the guilt that I feel? What can cover me? Make me whole. I don't know how many of you saw the Christopher Nolan movie that came out a few years back called Inception. It starred Leonardo DiCaprio. He's sort of the protagonist of the movie. He's married to someone in the movie called Mal. It's a mind-bending high plot that's hard to summarize in a sermon illustration. The premise of the movie is, is that they're able to enter into dreams and to steal ideas from people in the midst of their dreams, to be able to implant ideas, to change the course of individuals' lives and even nations. DiCaprio and his wife, Mal, go into the dreamlike stage so much that she begins to suffer from being able to know what is real and what is a dream. She tragically ends her life. DiCaprio's character is haunted by guilt, haunted by grief. And the whole premise of the movie is him trying to figure out what to do with my guilt. We come to sort of the crescendo of the movie where he's in this dreamlike stage and he's seeing a projection of his late wife and, and she's talking to him and there over the table, she says in that moment, what do you feel? And he says, Guilt. I feel guilt, Mal. No matter what I do, no matter how hopeless I am, no matter how confused, the guilt is always there reminding me of the truth. And for this Christopher Nolan movie, the, the premise is the only way that we're able to move forward with our guilt is to confront it, to see it, to face it, and to admit it and to forgive ourselves but it's just not true. You don't have the power to do that, my friend. You need someone more powerful than yourself to be able to cover the guilt of your past. You can't alone absolve yourself of guilt because you do not have the basis nor the power to do this. This is why so many people in our world, in our families, they, they run from guilt thinking to themselves, maybe if I just perform enough that I can, I can outpace my guilt. Or maybe there are many people that just drink their guilt away every night. Or maybe they begin to, to abuse prescription pills. Why? To numb themselves to the guilt that they feel inside. There, there's some people that just distract themselves with endless scrolling because they don't want to look inside. They don't want to look behind it. They're not sure what's ahead. And so the question is, is what will wash away our guilt? What if I told you nothing but the blood of Jesus? What if I told you what can make you whole again? 
is not you looking into your past and admitting it, but is you looking to your Savior and receiving his covering, his blood. The writer of Hebrews would say it so beautifully in Hebrews 9, verse 12. He, Jesus, entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and cows, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more? Well, the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience. Just hold that close to you. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What can wash away your sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Listen, that's not a truth that that you need to hear just if, if there's, there's guilt sort of haunting you in the past. I think, I think many Christians have this low level sense of consistent guilt that, that because of their performance or lack of performance, God uh, looks upon us and he is consistently disappointed in us. And we're, we're pretty sure that he loves us, but we're not really sure from day to day that, that he likes us. And so many of us go through our life trying to get God's attention, to maybe see if God would like us and will bless us and if we can be good enough to earn his affection for us. And we just need to be reminded that the base of our security is not in your performance, Christian. It's not in my performance. What we sing about earlier with amazing grace is the beauty of this truth. Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he said it so powerfully. Grace means there's nothing we can do to make God love us more. And grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. Grace means that God already, Christian, loves you as much as an infinite God can possibly love. God God doesn't give out golden stars at the end of your spiritually perfect days. And God doesn't give out spiritual demerits when you blow it and don't have a quiet time or you blow it and get frustrated with your family or your friends here. His faithfulness is constant even when our faithfulness falters. And his love never fails even when we fail. And this gives us a ground security knowing that we are his so we can serve him, so we can love him, so we can pursue Holiness, not trying to get his attention nor his affection, that is our security already through the blood of Jesus. I mean, imagine with me, you're coaching a a five-year-old coach pitch baseball game. And and five-year-old boy, let's call him Johnny, he gets up to the plate, the coach pitches it, strike one, he swings and misses, gets back in the batter's box, strike two, swings and misses, you call him out, hey, Johnny, take a little bit of a breath. Collect yourself, he gets back in the batter's box, swings with all of his might, strike three. Throws down the bat, storms into the dugout, inconsolable, crying. He gets as far away from the rest of the team as he possibly can, gets into the nook and the cranny of the very far end of the dugout there. And you as the coach, you go over to him, you get down on one knee and you say, Johnny, what's the matter? And he says, I'm not good enough. 
I just struck out. I'm not good enough. They're going to kick me off the team. And then you as the coach, you look him into the eyes and you say, no, Johnny, if you get up there in the next at bat and you hit a home run, you're going to be on this team. But if you get up in the next at bat and you strike out again, you know what, Johnny, you're going to be on this team. You're on this team regardless of your performance. So you say to Johnny, get your hat on, get your glove, and get ready to go back out on the field. Now, what you don't tell a five-year-old is even more important. What you don't tell Johnny in that moment is, Johnny, you're on this team and it doesn't have anything to do with your performance. You know why you're on this team, Johnny? Because your mom and dad paid the parks and rec the due for you to be on this team. Your mom and dad have already bought the jersey. Your mom and dad woke you up and got you to the field. They took you to Dick's Sporting Goods and you know what they did? They bought you a glove and they bought you a bat and you're on this team because someone else has done all the work. So go have fun. Your performance doesn't determine if you're on the team or not. Can I just remind you, Christian, that you're on the team because of his perfect performance. So get your hat on. Find your glove. Serve him. Not to win his affections, but because this is how much he loves you. Let us pray.